This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right, we're back with another bonus episode. This time we're talking about the Handmaid's Tale phenomenon on the occasion of the publication of Margaret Atwood's, I guess, long wonder. We didn't even know there. Let's put it this way. The Testaments came out. It wasn't a long lead time we had knowing it was coming out, nor were there many whispers. It had been so long since The Handmaid's Tale itself. I don't think it's not in the um, next Game of Thrones level of anticipation. No one was really waiting on it. It People had wondered about it, but we didn't. Suddenly we had one. Long wanted, shortly waited. Yeah. Awaited, shortly awaited. Yeah, we had about a year's notice this was happening. Mm -hmm. Though Atwood apparently has been working on it for a while. We'll get into that in a minute. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the first section of the show talking about The Handmaid's Tale. Give a little background. We went back and looked at, like, what was it like on its own um, publication in 1986? What was the reaction like? What's its life been like then? What's happened of late? And then talk about our own experience reading The Handmaid's Tale. Take it on its own terms. I reread it in anticipation of this. Then we'll talk about the Testaments in the second half of the show. Um, in that set part of the show, we'll do a few minutes of spoiler-free discussion, evaluation, review, recommendation, whatever whatever you want to call it. And then we'll get into the book um, and think about the whole arc that we have now before us of The Handmaid's Tale. Okay, but before we do that, let's do a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay. You and I did some research about the initial publication of The Handmaid's Tale. Do you want to start there or do you want to start with your own reading experience back way back in the when? Ooh, let's talk about our own first reading experience. Okay, you go first. I would like to start there. Um, I did not have to read this in school. I'm not even sure if I was aware of it as a thing. You know, like I have a 
you know, degree in English, Mm -hmm. um, but never had to read it in high school or college. I first read this in the summer of 2008 when my very first book blog was a wee little baby. Mm -hmm. Um, And I like have a very clear memory that I was visiting my parents. I had known that The Handmaid's Tale was a big deal. I picked it up because it was on summer reading lists that I was selling at Barnes and Noble where I was working at the time. And I was like, okay, this is on a bunch of syllabi. <laughs> I should know what this book is about. It's a like a modern classic. So I didn't have, like, that's all I knew um, mm. about it. I went in totally cold. And I remember just being captivated by it. Um, you know, 11 years ago, I was in my mid-20s. And being terror, like, it's, the book is terrifying in a way of, uh, and I think it's intended to be, um, but that, that was my first experience of it, reading it on my own. Um, I think I wrote about it on my blog. I'm sure that I talked about it with the people around me of like, wow, she's really imagining the bottom of the, or on the way to the bottom of the slippery slope of what happens when, um, women's rights are severely restricted for religious means when the when religion takes over the government um, and that it's in the book in sort of backlash to the feminist movement um it was really terrifying i was also like just starting to understand in my adult life what my feminism meant Mm. um and so that i remember that being very formative and just being struck by the thoughtfulness and like there's kind of a thoughtful obviousness to some of the choices like that Mm. the handmaids don't get to go by their names but that they're referred to as of fred or you know of kyle or whoever they're the commander is that they're assigned to that like right down to your name, you're stripped of your identity and of your agency in this story. And that Atwood finds a way to strip the women at all the levels of the society um, of their personal rights, even the women who appear to be powerful um, was just bracing. It was a chilling reading experience. And I remember staying up really late in my childhood bedroom (laughs) being like, Oh my God, (laughs) what about you? I think I said on the show the other day, I read it either in high school or early in college when I was going through my read the things you haven't Mm -hmm. read, but you know are things phase. And so I probably, I read it out of any kind of context other than it was probably on some list, right? It was like in the back of Harold Bloom's Western Canon or the greatest novels. Yeah. It was one of those kinds of things um, where I picked it up out of context that probably the Barnes and Noble in Lawrence, Kansas, or the the borders (laughs) in Lawrence, Kansas and a paperback edition. I remember it distinctly. And so without context, um, I mean, you clearly can tell it. it's a political book, but I really read it. More, my experience of it was more like reading a Faulkner or Morrison, which is you don't know what's going on. And part of the experience of the text is putting together how this world is. What, what world are we in? What, how is this thing working? How, what are the rules of memory and time um, in Morrison and Faulkner? But in this one is really what are the rules of the society? Uh, and where am I? Where am I in space and time? So I read it more of a. I don't mean this as as a, a compliment or a slag of, as an artistic piece than a mm. political or feminist one, mm-hmm. because it it is stylized. It's not. Uh, I really liked the Hunger Games as a dystopian. Again, it's it's pitched to a different audience, but that's you don't think of the Hunger Games as having a particular style. It's just a dystopia, right? It, right it's right. a it's a novel has me dystopia where The Handmaid's Tale is told in a first person. First person point of view from a person who's in distress, writing surreptitiously in snatches over time and isn't really sure what is going on, but maybe is. 
um, and also dealing with her own emotions on the page. So as that kind of a reading experience, it's, it's remarkable. It's a remarkable reading experience in that way because what Atwood does with voice and point of view is really remarkable, even outside of the world of Gilead um, that she creates in it. So I guess I came in it maybe inverted that way and only came later in graduate school and some other places to look at it as a, you know, a feminist text, a postmodern text. Um, though I'm not sure it is, but that's maybe beside the point here. Um, so that's always been my experience of it as a dystopia. Uh, it's interesting. You and I once got into a very long discussion (laughs) (laughs) about science fiction versus speculative fiction. And Atwood was at the center of that belief. Mm -hmm. I don't believe Handmaid's Tale was the um, the pearl around which this particular, uh, the, the grain of sand around which this particular pearl of a discussion crystallized. But this is clearly a, a speculative fiction. It's not science fiction, um, at least in my reading of it in 1986. It was, this could happen tomorrow, yeah, which isn't science fiction, at least using my um, definition of it. But it's the speculative fiction is what if something that doesn't currently exist or happen did happen. And mm-hmm. that's interesting in its own right. Um, so that's, that's where I came in. My, my thing, feelings about a dystopia, I'm not sure it's a wonderful dystopia. I don't think it's on the level of 19.4 in that regard. But as a fable, as a cautionary tale, mm-hmm. as a piece of imaginative fiction that's doing something, I think it, it has a lot of merit. But I think to judge it as a dystopia, as typically thought of, it doesn't hold up as well. Maybe we'll get into that. And I think actually the Testaments, frankly, throws a lot of that into into relief. Um, but Mary McCarthy's initial New York Times <laughs> review, and maybe we should get into the, the background. I find myself nodding my head at a lot of it, though the overall dis- dismissal is maybe strong, or maybe not, of, of the book I don't agree with. But some of the critiques itself I agree with, but maybe I'm missing the point. Maybe McCarthy's missing the point. Maybe we're all missing the point. Um, it's interesting to look back at that now because I've never, we all live in the post-Atwood, Handmaid's Tale, hagiography world. We were just talking about this before we got on the show. Yeah. So seeing a, seeing the New York Times pan, there's no other way to put it, is a bit of a um, douse of water, uh, maybe needed and interesting to talk about. There yeah, too. it was really interesting going back and reading those reviews from the first publication. And what was, I, I think, most perhaps most surprising is just how mixed they are. It's like a really, really mixed bag. There are some raves, there are some pans, there's some sort of middling stuff. Uh, I found a piece on HuffPo from not too long ago, Hmm. um, from a couple of years ago about what critics, uh, this was after The Handmaid's Tale surged in sales after the, um, the recent election, but about what critics said about The Handmaid's Tale back when it was released. And there's a good roundup of sort of all the varieties of the varieties and flavors of mm-hmm. criticism and appreciation that we can put into the show notes. But like if you had asked me based just to guess based on the way that we talk about The Handmaid's Tale today and the place that it occupies in literary culture and the, the culture in a broader sense insofar as like you can refer to like, man, it's really going to be like The Handmaid's Tale up in here. And most mm. people, if they don't know the specifics, they understand that you're referring to like some bad thing is happening to women because of government restrictions. Yeah, right. um, I would have said it, well, it, it became this huge big deal. Probably the reviews were 
primarily good. Um, and they, they really were mixed. And that Mary McCarthy review in the New York Times, as you mentioned, is fascinating, because she opens with surely the essential element of a cautionary tale is recognition. Mm. And then she goes on to spend a couple of paragraphs talking about how there's no shock of recognition for her in reading The Handmaid's Tale. It says the book just does not tell me what there is in our present mores that I ought to watch out for unless I want the United States of America to become a slave state, something like the Republic of Gilead whose outlines are sketched here. And, you know, I was four years old when Mary McCarthy wrote that review. Mm -hmm. I don't know what life was like for women in 1986 from lived experience. But as a woman in 2008, when I first read the book, and as a woman in 2019, like, I feel like the things we should be watching out for so that we don't end up in this place are obvious and have been obvious. Um, And that was, uh, like, it was just head scratchy to, like, how did you get to this place where this is the quibble that you open with. I agree that some of her uh, other other critiques of the book are interesting and valid, and it's not a perfect book. But then again, like most of the things that end up on the canon aren't perfect. They just Mm. end up there because of some larger significance. Yeah. I guess one thing that struck me in reading it again, uh, post really the ascendancy of The Handmaid's Tale to become an icon, and the figure of a handmaid is an icon Mm -hmm. now, which we should get into a little bit now, it's just the Handmaid's Tale is just much more slight than I remember. Like in a good, and I think in an interesting way. Like it is one woman's a handmaid, Offred's, you know, her one experience. And it's over really only the course of a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get perspectives from other characters, um, and I think it works in that particular way. But in a way where people want to build a dystopian framework around it, there's just not much there. There's so much we don't know about Gilead and how it came to be. That part of the McCarthy, I think I I recognize, even if I'm not sure it's necessary, like, how did this happen again? Like, there was a counter-revolution, and, and then, like, paramilitary people raided Congress, we're supposed to understand, and I, I guess there's a little bit of that hand-wavy stuff, and sometimes these kinds of dystopias work better where you don't worry too much about actually putting it in a time and place people recognize, like, the Hunger Games, this, this weird pen, uh, what, Pan-M. Okay, it's sort yeah. of America, but sort of not... Um, Orwell's 1984 pushed it into the future where you could still recognize, you know, that you're in London, but it's far enough away where you're not kind of mapping it onto a specific place in time. And this is like the shorthand is what if Puritans now and too much kind of is the shorthand for this and how we get there is a little unclear. And if that's what you're thinking a dystopia should do, a cautionary tale to do, um, maybe, maybe it doesn't function on that level, Mm. but I'm not sure... I'm not sure it is a cautionary yeah. tale. I guess that's another thing I wonder about. Like, is it a cautionary it's, tale? Is it a fate? Like, what's the difference between a fable and a cautionary tale? I think that, it that is, is the... I found myself thinking about a lot um, yeah, in the last I, few days. I think it is the answer to uh, what if. And Atwood talks about that herself in some of the pieces that I think we both read in preparing for this, that she starts with a what if. And... She, And I agree with the classification of it as speculative fiction. She even says, I made a rule for myself. I would not include anything that human beings had not already done in some other place or time or for which the technology did not already exist. So she's not inventing like new Mm -hmm. science. It's not science fiction. It really like it's a what if it's a speculation. Um, I think. I never got hung up in my reading uh, in The Handmaid's Tale of like, okay, what are the specifics of how we got here? Because it just seemed so believable that you could end up there like that. Maybe there aren't like, you know, in 2008, when I was reading it, we weren't specifically looking out for like Mike Pence to be on TV Mm -hmm. talking about punishing women who have abortions. But it's believable that a group 
with enough people like that could find a way to take power and that if they did this was the world that they would create so i was i was satisfied by that but i can see how if you're really looking for like a detailed plan of here are the specific things to avoid or the specific things to do to not end up in this place. It doesn't meet those needs. I liked the vagueness of it. Like to me, that makes it scarier. Um, And maybe we can talk about that in the Testaments and the way that the Testaments does tell some more Mm -hmm. of the history. But um, that like there are, it seemed to me when I read it the first time that there were so many possible ways that could happen Um, and it was so believable that we could end up at the bottom of that slippery slope that her exploration of like what would it be like to be a person inside that to be a woman Mm -hmm. in this particular situation was really compelling i do wonder too i think the point you made about what it was like um not to use mary mccarthy herself but a figure like mary mccarthy who is a professional woman in 1986 we're only 14 years on the other side of the row there right Mm -hmm. and at that point i can imagine it feeling like the the momentum the direction of women's rights and gender equality was expanding i mean even though reagan was in power like in power elected you know i don't i don't want to use the the tyrannical words unnecessarily but like it felt like the momentum was in one direction and i think one thing that's brought the handmaid's tale into the discourse in a way now that it wasn't in say 1996 we weren't talking about the handmaid's tale is we could feel the that the contraction was possible right um it's some of its trump some of the supreme court some of its tea party like we've seen we saw that initial wave after row and leading up to row and it may have felt like it was impossible to to turn the tide back the other way and the handmaid's tale is a reminder, a cautionary tale, a fable, a what if, whatever you want to say that it could come back the other way. There, there is, it's this, this could be more like a pendulum than a comet. Well, I guess even comets mm. can come around depending on what you're looking at, but like <laughs> maybe that's what she couldn't, maybe in 1986, it felt like all the momentum is one direction. Um, whereas another 20 years, another swing of the pendulum, mm. another counter revolutionary you know to to use those account in in terms of gender equality wave certainly has rippled through or come to light i don't know which one of those some some people say it's more that's become more overt it was always there but people weren't talking about i don't know but the idea that there that roe could get overturned is kind of the reverse tipping point a lot of people think Mm -hmm. about that's why we see the handmaid's tale uh, the handmaidens you know at kavanaugh's confirmation hearings out on the steps and stuff like that because people are saying here's a you know, if they were going to go back, this is one of those stones we have to walk on to get all the way back to or back to what Gilead would look like in the future or something else like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point and really possible. Um, one of the ways that Atwood herself described the early reviews, at least in Canada, was that they were baffled and somewhat anxious. Mm-hmm. And I think baffled is a really interesting word choice there. And I would give Margaret Atwood credit. Like, I'm assuming that she chose that word for a reason, that if reviewers and readers were confused by why this kind of story was being told or like picking up on the sense of anxiety from it, but maybe not clear on like, why is it coming? Why why do we have this book right now? Why is Margaret Atwood telling this story? What are we supposed to be afraid of? That does point back to like, perhaps something in the water in the culture was different at the time that made it harder to imagine or less available, less relevant to Mm -hmm. just a rank and file reader to see themselves in, uh, in these characters and to believe that this could happen to them. It's really interesting to think about. Um, I'm not sure how well it sold out of the gate. That's one thing we couldn't jointly find um, in the year since it sold millions of copies. Um, initially, 
He was a finalist for the Booker Prize. It won the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Um, and then really picked up steam really in the next 10 years after its publication in academia, um, especially in reading lists and in, in theses and dissertations as women's studies um, became more and more of a central piece of the humanities, if not the central piece, maybe, in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and The Handmaid's Tale was a, and remains, ripe for all the things humanities likes to do with artistic works. And that became, you know, generations now of graduate students and undergraduate students have read The Handmaid's Tale in an academic context and kept it, you know, relevant. And then the TV show and Trump. I mean, those are the other two things. We can't, we can't talk about Trump um, or we can't talk about The Handmaid's Tale without talking about Trump, and we can't talk about without the, without talking about the TV show, who kind of at the same time reminded us, reinforced that we had a we had a cultural icon, a cultural document that served as I don't know a flag, uh, as a as a symbol, really, mm-hmm. in, in in a way that we don't have another one. We don't have another cultural symbol quite as powerful. Um, to represent retrograde anti-feminist ideas as the handmaid. I don't, there, there's nothing even close yeah, as I was taking stock. I think it's really singular in that, and not to say that no one else has done a feminist dystopia, which Margaret Atwood disputes the use of that descriptor, but I'm going to go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, like the other big dystopian stories that we have are about, you know, some regime takes over They're like, it's always about a group of people that want to remain in power and have control of resources. And the way that you do that is you get control of the people. Um, but none of the stories up until this point, I don't think were about specifically that the resource being controlled was women mm-hmm. and women's agency. Um, not just like to go back to the Hunger Games, not just like a group of wealthy people who wish to remain wealthy <laughs> and mm-hmm. keep everyone else down by controlling resources and creating competition between the people that don't have the resources, um, but very specifically a theocracy driven by a specific reading of the Bible um, that interprets gender to mean that men are just rightfully placed by God in positions of power, that women should not have positions of power, that the men should make all of the decisions and women should be subjugated to um, whatever the men in power choose because that's the position God put them in. Like you just get this sort of catch-22 feedback circle of why these women should be doing the things that they're told Mm -hmm. that they should do. No one had done that before. Like that is very, that's the very specific thing that makes The Handmaid's Tale, I think, different and very scary is it's not just like, what would it be like if the world as we know it ended? It's like it affects men and women very differently. And this was a story that um, in the like sort of surge, as you're right, the like early surge of women's studies coming to the front of humanities was looking right at that of, mm-hmm. you know, what happens when it's women are the commodity. And I don't I mean, the book is clearly the source material for for the show, but I don't think we have handmaidens on the step of the Supreme Court without the TV show. Like that made that symbol recognizable and sort of like it's on CNN kind of way saying handmaids on the Supreme Court steps. Without the TV show, people are like, what the hell, what is this? I I don't think it's, it's not enough of a cultural thing to be usable as a totem of an idea of of protest, I guess is ultimately Mm -hmm. what it is. Interesting that, I think there's interesting too that 
the quietness, the subservience, the inarticulateness of the handmaiden has been taken up by the people who use that garb in those moments. Like mm-hmm. some of the powers, the, the silencing, the self-silencing, and just sort of standing for standing for being subject. Like mm-hmm. you are subject and you sit there quietly and you let people put onto you their reading and it does the work you need it to do. Absolutely. All, all, all in one. Um, I, I looked around, I tried to find the first or something about one of the early utilizations of the the Handmaid's Tale garb as political protest. And I didn't come up with anything concrete. If anyone's ever seen anything like that, I'd like to know it like, Maybe it was before the TV show and there was some other thing, but like where where was the um, prime mover for this more current wave the, of this kind of cosplay protest, which yeah, I've the, never seen before? The very first reference that I could find, and I'm not sure that it's the first instance, was to um, women dressed as handmaids showing up um, at the Texas State House, I believe, in protest mm. of an anti-abortion bill in March of 2017. So yeah. just on the heels of um, Trump's inauguration. Mm-hmm. And then the the book sold well when the show came out, but really it in 1984 shot to the top of the bestseller list in January, um, you know, around Trump's inauguration mm-hmm. in, in uh, January of 2017, I guess it would. Yeah. Been. One Boy, of the, it seems num- like way longer ago. Than what, right. <laughs> one of the Ooh. numbers I saw about that um, said that I think the, that piece was also from like March or April of 2017, that during the election sales of the handmaid's tale had increased about 60% over what they mm-hmm. usually were. And that in the couple of months since the election, they had increased by 200%. Um, I think, you know, that's tailed off. We're not still seeing the handmaid's tale no. as a bestseller every week, um, but people were turning in large groups um, to reading this book and to reading 1984 after Trump's inauguration. I'd be really curious to know how many of them were going to those books for the first time that, you know, cultural critics and political commentators and people writing editorials were referring to dystopia. They were referring to 1984 and to The Handmaid's Tale. And I would guess a lot of people who wouldn't have previously gotten the reference picked up those books and and got it. And that's also one of the things that contributes mm-hmm. to women being able to dress as handmaids, show up in protest of something and be recognized. Um, let's see anything else about, I mean, it's been banned. It's, it's always been banned in various places um, since its publication. Let's say here, this was from Wikipedia. I think you and I got this from the same place, but in the decade of the nineties, it was the number 37 most banned booked. Mm-hmm. And then the 2000s, number 88, so fall from there. I wonder if it's banned anywhere now. We don't hear about this. you think we would hear about it if people are trying to ban The Handmaid's Tale, but we don't seem to hear about this when we pay attention to that stuff. Yeah, you know, and with the reasons it's banned are, I think, pretty predictable if you know the content of the book um, that it's banned and challenged it's explicit mm-hmm. there's profanity there's sex there's suicide um i found this quote to be very amusing both defamatory to minorities god women and the disabled like just a mixed bag there of like yeah. we're mad at this book for all of the things that it does interesting that it's been banned i think less and less frequently or challenged less and less frequently um since the 90s but we've talked on the main show about how there, we've seen a shift in the content of the books that yeah. show up on most frequently banned uh, and challenged books lists and now the the real shift is towards um people people are focusing on trying to ban and challenge books that deal with um lgbtq content and sort of the 
identities that are not, you know, cisgendered heterosexual people. Like that is the controversy now. Um, that and in younger, younger books right. targeted younger mm-hmm. readers. Like mm-hmm. I don't know that we're getting too many LBTQ books tar- for adults being targeted in high schools. So the Handmaid's Tale is clearly a book for adults and not about LGBT. So the target has shifted. I think, interesting, I was thinking about this too, that the target moving towards kids' books, towards LBTQ plus stories and characters is a sign as sad as it is of progress, right? Like mm-hmm. it's becoming, in order to challenge something successfully, you have to move down towards towards kids, towards the places where you feel like people are going to be more anxious. And that the Handmaid's Tale is farther up the reading food chain is interesting now to think about where it's untouchable is strong, but it's not, it's not controversial. It's not on the table for discussion as being appropriate or not. Anymore, right. A, a think, feminist largely. story isn't quite yes. as offensive to people as it used to be, or it's just mm-hmm. not as offensive as the existence of stories about gay people. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, may, maybe as stories about gay people have become more prevalent that's a target that people who are interested in such things are more interested in going after than the handmaid's tale so maybe it's deflecting some of the attention that would be mm-hmm. um pointed at the handmaid's tale. i guess it's a good time to talk about subsequent critiques of the handmaid's tale as being well i mean it's it's a critique and a description right to say mm-hmm. it, it's a text of white feminism i don't think I don't think many people would disagree with that who are interested in listening to this show where people of color, women of color especially are, what are they? They're, they're pushed off screen. I mean, the description we get in The Handmaid's Tale is that the children of Ham, which is basically all people of color we're supposed to think, I guess, have been eliminated, moved to the colonies. Again, where they're going, were they all murdered? We don't really know. But they're not in these stories. They're just not. Um, and one thing we had hoped wondered about with the testaments that some attention might be paid to other kinds of identities. Spoiler alert, they're not. Nope. Um, I don't know. what. The, well, well, let's save it. But in this context, that's some, that in the initial rounds of reviews, I was saying no one was talking about that in 1986. Into the 90s, that became more part of the discourse. Mm-hmm. And reading it now, I can't help but notice. I mean, even without knowing that was out there, I think I would have picked it up. It's like, where, where are the where are the black people again? Like all of America, like all of America, or like right. the whole. Basically, I think Colorado to D.C. from sort of Mainish all the way to Florida is Gilead, and where are the there's a lot of black people and Latinos and Asians mm-hmm. and like what happened to all of them? When we just don't get it, and I'm not sure what to make of that. I mean. There's a charitable and uncharitable reading. I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I think it's notable that the TV show, the director of the TV show, I've forgotten the name, said that recast the characters in The Handmaid's Tales that were obviously white in the book, and there's a black, they're black families, black couples, black women. And he said, you know, is it racist? Is it is it re- is it actually being racist or reflecting racism to have a show all about white people? <laughs> and I thought that was a really powerful kind of an idea. It's like, at what point does replicating racism by whitewashing the whole country be reifying of white supremacy in itself, even as it's trying to explain it. I don't know what to do with that at this point, but it's, it's on the table. It's there. You can't not talk about it. Yeah. I think it's really, it's complicated in the way that we think about the way that we think about and that we talk about race and representation is very different than the way it was in 1986 and our expectations of representation are very different but like white supremacy and this like super conservative 
twisted fundamental version of Christianity that gives rise to Gilead are very closely connected in real life. Um, And the kinds of people like alive in the world in 2019 who would be inclined to try to create a Gilead, many of them would also be inclined to white supremacist views and to you know, eradicating people of color Mm -hmm. in some fashion, Um, whether they would openly admit to it or not, or openly make a plan for it or not. And I think that if this book came out now, if The Handmaid's Tale came out now, that the whole, like, you know, children of Ham have been sent away would just require a lot more explanation. It would get murdered. The the book would get murdered. Am I wrong? It would get destroyed for this. And I think there could be, like, there could be a story told about that yeah, like it's right. it would be very believable and in line for the like the commanders and the people in power who run gilead you could tell a story about how they made these decisions and what was driving them like they're afraid of losing their power in all the mm. ways so women have to be subjugated people of color have to be subjugated anyone who might rebel against them has to be subjugated and you could also tell the story of how they go about doing that or have a person of color character writing from one of the colonies or, you know, there are a lot of ways that it could happen, but it would be essential. And it's, you know, like June's husband in the TV show, Elizabeth Moss is the main character. June, her husband is a black man. Their child is mixed race. Mm. And um, that's like, that happens, but it also doesn't, you know, flesh out the whole world of the story. Um, And yeah, the Testaments doesn't, do anything for that either i guess maybe for internal consistency like you can't just add a bunch of black characters to gilead after the handmaid's tale has well, happened even, but when, there they, would even be... when they go run away to canada right and these other yeah there sort would... of, there's no there's right. no people of color anywhere i right. didn't get it like it occurred to me that if the testaments had been called the children of ham and it was about people mm-hmm. of color mm-hmm. i would have been like nine thousand times more interested yeah but atwood i don't look i don't know what to say I don't, that's not a club she has in her bag. It just isn't. I don't I think, know what to say. You know, I think she's just my, I have a less generous reading of this. I think she's kind of dug in. Like she has been asked about it. And yeah. my interpretation of her responses is essentially like, well, that's not what the story is. And but, that, but why? But why? Yeah, it, okay, right, right. Right. Like, but I mean, that's not a good, <laughs> okay, <sure. laughs> it's not a good yeah. explanation. There was opportunity to do something in the Testaments that like she's, you know, she's fleshing out the world in which this happens. And she very easily could have made the choice to have characters of color on the page to talk about what happened to the people of color in the United States when Gilead took over. Like she could have decided to do that. And she chose not to. Um, And I think that that deserves to have a lantern hung on it and to be criticized, like Mm -hmm. to dig in because you just don't, want to have to care about the criticism or about the fact that the world is different than it was 35 years ago when the first book came out. Like, you know, Margaret Atwood's on the record in several interviews addressing this and addressing related issues in ways that are not awesome. Mm. Um, And folks in Canada, like one of our um, Book Riot contributors is a Canadian lit scholar and will say things like, us up here in Canada have been telling you guys for a long time that Mm. Margaret Atwood is your problematic fave. Um, And I think she's, she's solidified that for me in some ways by failing to address it at all in this new book that is a very big deal that's getting a ton of publicity where she could have taken some corrective steps. Yeah, because I mean, I I'd certainly in my rereading of The Handmaid's Tale, I had that lens in mind. And, you know, you get you get the sense in the well, not the sense you get the, the proof that there are resistors, marginalized people, they're Jews and 
um, gay men, especially, mm-hmm. it seems to be, and Catholics, like they get hung up on the wall, like their bodies are on display. And even even among even among those, there are no people of color. Like that's what really struck me. It's like I'm not sure it would have been quote unquote fine for the the only appearance of a black body to be hanging dead on a wall, but at least it would have acknowledged that they exist, that their own disappearance was remarked upon or, or policed or anything. I mean, some people it, the, in, there's there's a very strong narrative that the story of American identity is a story of white supremacy. And this one, by centering exclusively white women's experience, really does that that narrative and that thinking a great disservice. Mm-hmm. Um, and in and a, a misreading, I think, an oversimplification, even as it's sort of thinking complicatedly about ideology and theology, um, it just omisses such a, a critical, deep, important, painful part that it's so hard it's it's hard even to to think about except as and i guess this is another thing we're saying in my experience of it other people's mileage may vary as a as a book that came out in 1986 as a historical document as part of the can you can say well the, the conversations just weren't there in the way that they are now take that for a while it doesn't excuse anything it's just what it was right that we weren't seeing those critiques in 1986 in the reviews tells you something about the world that Atwood was writing in 1984 1985 mm-hmm. but that's not the world we live in anymore yeah. it's just not yeah i think to be a relevant work of like cultural significance and not every book is trying to be a relevant no. work of cultural significance like and that's fine not every book needs to be but in order to be that now to be like especially a dystopia that attempts to ask what if some really bad thing happened in our world what would it look like you have to take an intersectional approach and Atwood didn't do it in 1984 um, for all of the reasons that we've already discussed the world was different but she made an active choice to not do it this time yeah. around and that's telling of some things i, I guess I should, i'm not saying it's not fa- I, i'm not saying it's not it's that you shouldn't critique the handmaid's tale for its i don't know whiteness you know i, I don't I, I, it's just different than yeah, this. Yeah, like it's, it's a, like tenfold yes, yes it's tenfold the problem worse now, in yeah, the I testaments agree. than it mm-hmm. would be thinking about ni- uh, handmaid's tale than sure because we not only are the criticisms out there now, but she's been directly asked the question and she yeah. has answered the question and has just chosen not to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that is what it is. We don't know what her motivations are, but that's the, that is the choice that she's made and right. that reveals something. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I'll get out on this. Like I, I think, I think the handmaid's tale will endure as a 20th century classic and it will endure in the way that classics do as the conversation around art and literature and ideas and politics does, which is it will be seen as of its time, remarkable mm-hmm. in its own way, but also bearing the, you know, stamp of its time, for better or worse. You know, I love Gatsby. Gatsby got problems. Oh, I like yeah. Huck Finn. Huck Finn got problems. We're not asking things for it not to have problems, but the, by, by bringing it into the future 30 years, into the discourse 30 years, without acknowledging that the world is 30 years later in this particular way, mm-hmm. it does. it is one of those situations where I do, I do think it actually makes The Handmaid's Tale itself look worse in light than if this Testaments thing has not existed. But let's get to that. Any last words on The Handmaid's Tale before we move on? I, I feel myself wanting to move towards the Yeah, Testaments I'm ready now. to move on. Let's do it. <laughs> let's do a sponsor and let's talk about The Testament. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay. So anyway, that's where it is. So the Testaments has brought, I don't know, one thing it serves to do, forget about what's actually between the covers of the book, I think, is brought the Handmaid's Tales world into our current political moment. I don't, I don't think you can, I, I think that's inevitably true. You can't read the mm-hmm. Testaments like it's 1986. Right, no. And I think a lot of the discourse around the Testaments is going to bear that out over time. Let me, that's my gentle way of putting it. But <laughs> um, I guess we're going to do a few minutes of non-spoilery talk. That's mine is like, yeah. I think in a way it, it doesn't do much to me to add towards the Gilead Handmaid's Tale achievement. Um, and if anything, it highlights the blindnesses of the Handmaid's Tale writ large. There's some interesting stuff that are going. It's very readable. It, it's a page turning. Weirdly, more of a thriller, I'd say, than mm-hmm. than anything. Yeah, you want to know what happens and almost a spy book. It's I guess super um, plot. It's super plot heavy in um, in a way that's very different from The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, and, and Atwood herself has said in interviews about it now that you know people have asked her. Because the end of The Handmaid's Tale, you get the weird... I mean, we didn't talk about the textual document itself, but at the end of The Handmaid's Tale, you get the minutes from a Gilead Studies symposium, which is taking place some many years after Gilead has fallen, looking back on Gilead as a historical period and The Handmaid's Tale as an actual document, right? That, mm-hmm. that, that Alfred actually wrote and left somewhere. And they're considering this story in the context of Gilead study saying that, so the text is saying that Gilead was over at some point. And the thing that came after Gilead was sufficiently sophisticated and however you want to use that to have academic conferences about Gilead. And one of the questions she always got because she told us that Gilead would, would fall was how, how did it happen? How do we get from Offred getting into this van with Gilead itself seemingly flourishing or at least not in imminent peril to that conference? Um, and the Testaments really is the story of three main characters coming together to bring Gilead down. That's the story, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the broadest way to describe it. Um, and the synopses online don't spoil who any of the characters are, but I think we can say that one of these three central characters is a character that features prominently in The Handmaid's Tale, and we yeah. find out that person's perspective and their experience. And it is surprising and different than mm-hmm. uh, than the role that they play in The Handmaid's Tale. But it, it's a very different kind. It's just a very different kind of book. It's super plot heavy. You're not yeah. spending a lot of time um, with the character's internal lives with their thoughts um with their their fears their wishes you get some plotting on be like from the character who's um, kind of a spy doing secret things and contributing to attempting to bring gilead down but it's it it's a really different reading experience and i agree with your assessment that the handmaid's tale is going to continue to be a classic and stand in the canon understood as a book that was written in the time that it was written in and seen through that lens. And I, I think it's an important book for that reason. That kind of story needed to be told. We needed a mm-hmm. what if about 
Uh, we needed a, a feminist what if in speculative fiction in the way that Margaret Atwood did it. I don't think that the Testaments is going to do that. Like my sort of broad assessment, well, I guess we'll get in, we're getting into the meat <laughs> pretty soon is I don't think that this story needed to be told. And I don't think that it's going to last. Um, mm-hmm. There's just not like it's a it's an enjoyable enough reading experience. Um, it You turn the pages and it's compelling to find out what happens. But there's nothing like existential to to what's happening here. Um, nothing surprising in a like, think about your own life, think about your place in the world kind of way. There's a lot of detail and a lot of story. Um, but it's just not like if you're looking for a similar reading experience to a similar feel no. to what Stylistically, it's completely you, different. Yeah, the like, tone this is, is completely different. Yeah. Sitting down to the yeah. Testaments is going to be very different from how sitting down with the Handmaid's Tale was. And I, I think like to that end, or it, there's a high likelihood of readers being disappointed um, yeah. by a sequel to the Handmaid's Tale that is so different in so many ways. The genre is different. The tone is different. What she's, what she seems to be trying to do by even writing this book is very different. And it, it just like, I, I don't know even that I would have, I probably would because of the work we do have mm-hmm. read it. Um, but I think I would have read it eventually. I wouldn't have read it like the week that it came out. I think I would have waited to see like, sort of how is this book going to land and then gotten to it after the buzz <laughs> died mm-hmm. down, come to it on my own. Um, and that's, I think that's just sort of the, the reader service piece of like this part of the podcast is like it, moderate your expectations, I guess, or know what you're going into the Testaments looking for. It's not a slog. I mean, I ripped, I mean, I think we both ripped mm-hmm. through it because it's plotty. Like you, there's this, this is happening and this person is going here and we're getting a hint that there's something and blah, blah, blah. So in that way, but I guess the question of what it's about, I was left scratching my head a yeah. little bit. Like, whereas The Handmaid's Tale had a message, and it was it was kind of a meta message. Like, it, because it's out of time and space in a recognizable world, it wasn't like look out for this particular like kind of legislation. It wasn't like that. Um, it was in, in the vein of 1984. Here are some large trends that, if they coalesced, if they left unchecked, left unexamined could be the seeds of a very different world in which we lived mm-hmm. in. No, so all that's already established. So what work does the Testaments have left to do? I guess I have my own reading of it, but I find myself surprised that this is the book we got. Again, I don't think it's bad. I think the it's readable. I think that the enormous blind spot or will, uh, willing, willing or not of non-white, mm-hmm. um, non-cis-het, experience especially even two is completely gone and even holding that out for a moment i'm still not sure what the book is about i'm just not sure i have an yeah. idea but i think we have to get into spoilers so maybe yeah. one last non-spoiler thing or should we get right to, to spoiler talk i'm ready for spoilers <laughs> okay let's do spoilers what's this book about like you know, let's do or can we do a generous reading like why do this like we both have our trepidation like striking why the iron is hot people are wanting to do mm-hmm. it let's assume all that at what actually has an artistic thing she's trying to do with this book i don't know if we believe that or not but like let's say that we is that that's our prompt is to say what is the idea of the book i think that the idea in the most generous reading here is Atwood wanting to answer the questions that readers have had over the years or being inspired by those questions of how did Gilead fall and 
Margaret Atwood doesn't do things in a linear fashion. Like mm-hmm. if we were probably wrong to ever hope or expect that we would get a return back to the feel and tone of The Handmaid's Tale. Like she likes to do things differently and think about things differently. And this is a way to return to the world of the story, to flesh out the world of the story in a way that um, the more that I thought about it felt similar to me of how um, Oryx and Crake and the Year of the Mm. Flood, two of her other books, go together. Um, She talks about them as meanwhiles for each other. They take place in the same world um, at about the same time, but in different locations with different characters and a little crossover. And this builds out the world. Um, What happens with the we're going full spoilers now right so like mm-hmm. what happens with aunt the main one of the main characters is aunt lydia who's like the one of the primary villains of if the not Handmaid's the villain Tale. right if not I right mean, if not the villain and she's certainly the villain yeah. of i've only watched the first um series of the show but she is the villain of the first uh season at least of the hulu show and played like terrifically and terrifyingly by Anne dowd yeah. but like, what a great part. I mean, right? as, like, as a juicy. villain to go, a, a wonderful, juicy Yeah, part. and but. that it turns out that Aunt Lydia is not only a villain or not entirely a villain, but that she has been, uh, we find out how she ended up in Gilead. And mm. so that, like, I thought that was fascinating. Like being um, in her experience of being a, a woman who's powerful, she was a judge. She was educated. She had never been married and never had kids. And so she's exactly what Gilead is afraid of. Mm-hmm. Um, and being with her on like the day that Gilead took over yeah. and following that trajectory and getting to see her decision making from day one of like, I'm going to go along with this, but I'm going to like find my way to be as powerful as I can inside this system and ultimately overthrow it. And that that takes decades. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that was... I think a, an, a really interesting thought experiment. And I, fa- it's it's interesting always as a reader to be asked to find compassion for a character that mm-hmm. you previously were taught as the reader to, you know, to detest. And so I think Atwood wanted to go there. Like, what would it be? What would it be like to be one of the powerful people in Gilead? Um, and, and to be trying to make the overthrow happen. How would you overthrow it? I don't know that she had the answer to that question when she wrote The Handmaid's Tale. Um, So trying to answer, like, how Mm -hmm. could you take it down? Who would have done it? And to try to do that with at least one character that was familiar to readers. I think that's kind of what it's about. Um, But it doesn't, to me, this is not a book with a big message. I was saying to a friend like just an hour ago, like, I don't think every book has to have a big message. But you expect a book in The Handmaid's Tale family to be a a high bar Rebecca I mean that's what we're talking about it's a high bar here yeah it is a high bar I'm not sure there's a message at all um it's a book with a story like what's what's it about this is one of those books that you answer what's it about with what happens in the book yeah I mean to use other cultural references to to frame Lydia's arc it's like a I guess what's the biggest like Snape it's a Severus Snape sort of a story where Mm -hmm. bad 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 you think bad it was bad for a while or Snape is a little bit different because like Lydia was subject to Gilead in a very brutal way at the beginning we follow that then became a cog and then her critical consciousness then re-engaged like she kind of went into survival mode and survival mode going along and doing a lot of really bad stuff right and then at some point she started collecting nuggets, right. pieces, rumors, favors, um, compromise of yeah, various like, kinds. She's never converted all the way in her heart to Gilead. No, no, no. 
Uh, it maybe went dormant, um, but it also she was looked like a duck, walked like a duck for long enough that mm-hmm. she was a duck to some degree. But you get there's that satisfying you know, Darth Vader, Severus Snape, other things that you get the turn. It's it's not only it's just it's the person who is central to the evil of the story turning makes the overflow of that evil even more satisfying somehow. Like that's that's very it feels to me very like visceral to to have that person at least um, in the beginning because we get mm-hmm. Commander Judd and some Commander Kyle and other people all the men. The commanders are all very one note. Uh, you know, and that's not a critique. It's just true. But to have Lydia be the one who, in the in the Handmaid's Tale, you felt the most revulsion for because it felt like she was traitorous to women herself and how right. could she did blah, blah, blah. But to have that turn around, I think, is, is satisfying, almost like in a fan service kind of way. I, and I don't mean that as a pejorative sometimes, but it has a very sort of primal satisfaction to have Lydia be the one to turn yeah. the whole thing on its head. I agree. And the one of the questions at the heart of this is like, how could a, how could a person become Aunt Lydia? How could a yeah. woman do this to do these horrible things to other women? And we get a lot of answers right. <laughs> in the Testaments. And I think that does connect to current discourse in that you see um, around protests and around, you know, fascism and all of the sort of current political discussions, you see people say things like, well, everybody thinks that they would have fought the Nazis. Everybody thinks that they would have helped hide Jews in the 40s. But like, but but you don't know if you would have unless Mm -hmm. you've been in a situation like this. And like Aunt Lydia as the woman she was before Gilead happens, you would never have looked at that character probably or that person and said like, oh, well, when the totalitarian regime takes over, she is going to go gently. And she doesn't go gently, but she goes and we find out how. It's uh, the regime is compelling and terrifying and awful and abusive. And you've, you begin to have some sympathy, I think, compassion for uh, this is how it could happen. And maybe there's implicit in there a, a beat of this could probably happen to me. Um, I would, I want to think that I would fight Gilead. I want to think I would be the resistor or a member of Mayday, but there's, we're being asked to consider um, Mm -hmm. that many other options exist and are very likely. Well, her world is so blown apart that survival, an interior survival of any kind of critical consciousness is a kind of resistance, at least for a while, right? And she mm-hmm. sees some women, or at least there's one of the women she sees who sort of actively resist in a moment and is immediately killed. Right. And I think in that moment we see her realizing that if I really want to do something here, I, getting killed right now is no good to anybody. I mean, right. it's not put on the page in that way, but she does her, certainly not good for me. Um, but it's also not good in any sense that, you know, I'm going to turn on this guy right now and shoot him and immediately get the gun down like what's that going to do and she starts playing the long con though it's also clear from the book she enjoys being at the center of her own narrative like she's writing a narrative like there's another Mm -hmm. thing about the book too the way it's put together it's basically three documents one is aunt lydia's monograph or holograph is what it's called the ardua holograph it's basically her writing surreptitiously what's going on for future generations, she hopes to get it. And then a post-facto, post-Gilead fall testimony of two, the other two women who be central to this story, which I found myself much more scratching my head about. Like, I feel like if it, this is, if Aunt Lydia's story was presented, not even the same style, but the same, like, 
central way as Offred's was in The Handmaid's Tale, maybe that would be a little more mm-hmm. interesting. But all this stuff about baby Nicole and Jade, Rebecca, what was what what, what are we doing with that stuff? What, what is why why Lydia, does baby Nicole matter again? Yeah, Help like, me remember because Lydia needs something to be plotting about in her method of overthrowing Gilead. But I do think this is a cockamamie plot. It is. It's a real MacGuffin thing. So for those of you who haven't read it. Apparently, there's there's a real problem, and I think this is one of the places that fleshes out the like the real, you know, um, extra Gilead world in an interesting way. That the, there's a lot of people trying to get out of Gilead, and there's a lot of people mm-hmm. outside of Gilead trying to help. And the borders, you know, I think the border stuff feels more germane in a lot of ways than a lot of the other things that are going on here. I'm trying to get people in and out, mm-hmm. and how do you do this? And yeah, how they do talk you do about the, the underground female road. Yeah, the underground female road. Um, not for black people, by the way. They they don't get there, even though it's named anyway. That's a separate. Uh, yeah, I situation. had a little note in the margins that was like seriously. <laughs> seriously, yeah, yeah. Let's whitewash and co-opt at the same time. Cool, 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 cool. Anyway, um, and so one, this is a thing that happens too. We know in American life where the disappearance of one usually white girl becomes a national story, right? It's Jean Benet mm-hmm. Ramsey. It's you know whatever Nancy Grace used to talk about ten years ago on on CNNBC. Still Jean Benet Ramsey. It's still Jean. You know, like that that one missing white girl becomes a national. It's a Lindbergh baby. This this is not new. And for for Gilead, it's baby Nicole who was ferreted out of Gilead from a powerful family, and not the only one. But for one for for whatever reason, this one became the totem for like sixteen years. Right, it disappears, mm-hmm. baby. We find out that she's been in hiding in Canada, Winnipeg, or outside Winnipeg or somewhere, being raised by a couple of resistance. Mayday, Mayday is the the, the counter, you yeah. know, basically. Um, and that, like, Gilead. for a decade and a half, Gilead has been, like, hunting through Canada, trying to still find baby right. Nicole and bring her back. And how, and eventually she's identified. We don't know how. This is, it's very confusing to me. And for whatever reason, so bringing baby Nicole back was going to be a big coup for Gilead and especially Commander Judd and Aunt Lydia, whose power seems to be slipping for reasons we don't understand. But it was going to be there reifying their power and finally sort of sweep away their descent. And But um, Aunt Lydia uses this moment to snuggle the now young woman, I guess. She's 16, mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah. Something like yeah. that. Back in, reunite her with her half-sister who's been raised as sort of part of the Gilead system. She kind of believes in it. Her own critical consciousness is fostered by Aunt Lydia. They're half-sisters. And then they run away with the micro dot of documents to Canada, and that's that's the ball game. That That's enough to do it. I, I can't piece it together. I, I have to be honest. I don't understand why this matters. Like, I don't understand why baby Nicole matters to what the micro is that the micro dot is a baby Nicole. I, I don't get it. I don't get what it is about this micro dot has all the compromise Lydia's collected over time. I should say she gets it out with baby Nicole, whose name yeah, now is I Jade and her half sister and they go and I guess to take it to the press and then that's it. Yeah, yeah. The closest I could get to why does this matter, at least in the world of the story, is that like. Aunt Lydia gets the satisfaction of making everybody think that she has brought baby Nicole back and that Gilead is going to be successful. And then she gets to stick it to the man by it turning out that baby Nicole was working against Gilead the whole time Mm -hmm. and has snuck out and is part of the resistance and is releasing this information that's going to bring them down. But of course, we don't ever like see we don't really see that happen throughout the story you do get snippets of like what kinds of information is being leaked out because aunt lydia tells us about the secrets that she has uh, on all of these powerful people and the two girls um 
what is her name? Agnes is the one who's grown Agnes, up. Yeah, yeah Agnes, she's grown lamb. up in Gilead. Um, she is supposed to be married off to mm-hmm. Commander Judd and gets out of it by claiming to have been called to service as an aunt, which this apparently is also a path that girls can take that once yeah. you have... Like, Fast, I thought you, that part was interesting, okay, too. Uh, we should also say, if we haven't said it already on this, we didn't, we said it on the regular show this week, all of the trigger warnings in the world oh my God, for this yes, book... so right. All of them. Um, but a, a explicit scenes of sexual abuse of young girls. Mm-hmm. And that once they have their first periods, they are considered to be old enough to be married off and have kids. And we get to see, like, you can already imagine that that's terrifying and awful. But we are with some of the young girl characters as they as this happens to them, as, um, as they are abused by men in power. And also as they find out that they are going to be married, they're sent off to the class that tells them what's going to happen to them in marriage kind of they're all terrified of the penises that are coming for them and rightfully so mm-hmm. um, and if they can't or won't sort of tamp down all of their fears about those things and get in line and do what a nice young girl in Gilead is supposed to do um, they can freak out and one of the responses to that um, is that the ants may come and like we don't want her to kill herself because you find right. out that the girls committing suicide to avoid being married to old men is a thing. Um, they don't want to keep losing women to Bad suicide. Bad PR for the patriarchy to have yeah. these young girls killing right. themselves. Right. So we'll, they don't we'll let her say she's right. We'll let her say right. she's had a call to become an aunt, and then we'll see if we can assimilate her into this kind of system. Um, I did think it was interesting getting to follow Agnes, like going down the path of becoming an aunt in that she's never been allowed to read. Like, what is it like to read and then to discover um, reading all the secrets of the people in Gilead and actually reading the Bible and then being scandalized that what's in the Bible is not what she's been taught is in the Bible. And what does that mean for all of the things that she's believed about how the world is supposed to be? Like, I would have liked more there, but now we're way I'm like way off the original question you asked which is what is this baby Nicole business about and I don't really know I don't really know because we're we're given to believe that some combination of baby Nicole leaving Gilead being identified plus basically a Snowden drop of compromise you know a WikiLeaks mm-hmm. I mean frankly it's not mm-hmm. that different right a WikiLeaks a, a massive WikiLeaks style thing brought down the regime which I don't get why a microdot without baby Nicole wouldn't work, but it's maybe it's me. Maybe I'm just missing it. That's one thing I didn't I didn't really understand. The other thing that that struck me is like like 1984, like many great dystopians like Hunger Games, you know, the other ones, they usually or the most interesting ones I think in terms of thinking about politics are figuring out totalitarianism, like fighting against representing different kinds of totalitarian states. 1984 is a surveillance state. Hunger Games is a I don't know, entertainment totalitarianism, right, of its own kind. And this one is a patriarchal theo, theo, mm-hmm. um, theocracy um, totalitarianism. And to, again, I'm not a great scholar of these sorts of things. Um, but in the real world, totalitarian regimes are generally brought about about widespread populist movements, right? In the Bolshevik Revolution, that's people. And when the Berlin Wall came down, it was people, dan- you know, massive quantities of people in the streets. Um, and it's interesting to me that Atwood's imagination here about how to break down a totalitarian regime is not a populist one. It is a, basically a sleeper cell, got the MacGuffin to the right people, and that did it, which mm-hmm. seems to me a fantasy of some kind, right? Like 
if you only could do the right action, an individual could do the right action over time, you too can bring down a totalitarian regime, which I think is wish fulfillment of its yeah. own kind of way. That's one thing I came away yeah. wondering. I was like, this doesn't seem to me to match up with historical antecedents for how totalitarian regimes come down. This is more of a, if you only get sort of um, Agent 009 uh, to do the right thing, then you too can bring the whole thing down, which I thought was an interesting message. I wasn't sure what to do with that. Yeah, I, I think it made for a good story, yeah. but it's, and I'm not sure it's intended to be a message about how we, how we bring down regimes, but it stands in as one, whether it yeah. wants to be or whether not. Whether it wants to or not, the message here is one, one turncoat, one good, right. uh, Whoever's got Trump's tax documents, if you just yeah, put it like, on the disc and I don't know. I'm and not also sure what a kind of that. like you might think that some of the big bads are just big bads, but one of them might also secretly be working from the inside. Like yeah. it's it's just a little it's very confusing because I I agree like the way that Gilead would probably be brought down if it could be brought down is like all the women have to get together and decide that this right. is over. Um, and yeah, that, the arduous hall that the, the aunt. The halls basically become um, coffee houses, like they were in, like you know, right. in other, and they, be, they became yeah. sources that, of foment that were protected. And, and there's a yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and that know. there would be a kind of symmetry to the story then that Gilead happens in response to a feminist movement that like, yeah. these very conservative Christian people perceive to be out of control. Women are too big for their britches. Something must be done they make Gilead and there would be a very satisfying symmetry to Gilead is brought down by women in the streets revolting yeah. again, taking back power. Um, and that's a, that would have been a look at the cycle here of like mm-hmm. that, that this is how these regimes rise up as they take over in response to some, to some movement or to some group of people having more power than they think that group of people should be allowed to have. And they are brought back down by the people taking back the power. Right. Kind of an expansion and contraction of where the power mm-hmm. resides, one of the few and the many and the few right. and the many kind of a back and forth. So I, I don't know, I guess if you had asked me how Atwood might represent, narrativize, storify the end of Gilead, I don't think I had my money on, a cache of documents to Canada. Yeah. I, I just don't. It's just, I don't either. I'm surprised think, about that. And I'm not even sure if that's a critique. I'm just surprised, I guess, right it's, now. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just surprising it. that, like, if the press releases last year announcing that this book were coming had said, and it will be about how Gilead was brought down, mm-hmm. we would have been on this podcast, like, hypothesizing yeah. about how that would go. Five and our top, plausible scenarios. <laughs> yeah, our top 10 guesses would not have included a sleeper cell mm-hmm. run by Aunt Lydia. <laughs> And no. a WikiLeaks situ- no, situation. No, no, I just don't no, think no. it would have happened. It's- and I wonder in 1984, I mean, again, people are the products of their time and place. Knowing that Atwood wrote The Handmaid's Tale in West Berlin in 1984 makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're really next door to a totalitarian regime that built a freaking, literally built a wall. Literally a wall. <laughs> literally yeah. a wall that becomes so emblematic in The Handmaid's Tale and The Testaments too. Um, where you're on the other side of a totalitarian regime doing what totalitarian regimes do to enforce the kind of subservience and total control of it, your life experience. Like it, that's, it becomes, hysterical is the wrong word in this context, but it becomes like a caricature of itself. We'll just yeah. build a wall around Berlin. Like what do you, th- that's never going to work. Like it might work for a little while, but the, the, means, of, the means of control eventually are so ironclad that they cannot hold. 
you know, they're strong, mm-hmm. but they're ultimately brittle because of how um, totalizing they're trying to be. And this, we don't get any sense that if Aunt Lydia wasn't around, that there was any meaningful rank and file um, discontent. Like there's yeah. there's resistance fighters like in Vichy, or, um, the resist- French resistance, but there's not, there's not, there's not any, I don't know, not like you would even see that she had antecedents for like in, in, um, in East Germany. Uh, you just didn't see anything at all like that, which I wasn't sure what to make of. Um, yeah. Maybe a populist movement makes for a bad thriller. I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> but like, it didn't have to be a thriller. Like the, that no, she made the choice to make the follow-up to The Handmaid's Tale yeah. a thriller is its own kind of question. I, I think I'm walking away yeah. from the Testaments with more questions than I have answers. And sometimes that's a really enjoyable reading experience of like the continued wondering in this case i think the book is intended to answer the questions it's intended to tell you how gilead falls and who's responsible and how this might happen and what life was like for other people in different parts of that world of gilead and it does answer those questions but it doesn't answer like the spiritual need (laughs) that's that's left by the handmaid's tale um and spoiler, spoilers here, just to show you like how much of a thriller it is. And if you don't want to know, don't listen. You, you've been warned. Like the, the climax of this book is being smuggled out on a boat and rowing to shore, like with the cargo. Like this is something out of like the end of um, uh, oh, A Farewell to Arms or, you know, a bunch of spy novels, like just get to the shore, get at it, get to the boat. Like it's almost, I don't know if it's a commentary on that. I don't know if it's borrowing that, but like... The, um, uh, Jade and Agnes rowing a boat to safety was just so almost genre, I yeah. guess is what I'm yeah. saying. And the genre is not bad. It's just, I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the choice to do that, that to be so, so I don't know. Formulaic is the word yeah, I keep coming back to. I'm, I'm hesitating to, to come up with something better. Yeah, I am also, it was, like the, for all the ways that this book moves, and we did both rip through it, it's not really exciting. And the ending no. is certainly not exciting. There's a lot about it that is formulaic. Like spy stories do have certain formulas, and at sure. its core, right? This is this is like a spy thriller. Um, but just it just didn't do it for me. I think like mm. the the central question about the testaments that it's probably our job to answer (laughs) at least for ourselves here is if you love the handmaid's tale, should you read the testaments? I think no. I don't know about, I mean, should is tough. Um, Like, would you recommend it? Are you going to recommend this? I I think if, if you're, if you like the handmaid's tale, you found it meaningful to you and you're interested in the testaments, I would say it's interesting. I don't think it's a, it's not a bad, it's not a bad book. It's just different than what I was expecting. Ultimately, I think I was unsatisfied. I think I'm glad I read it. Is that an answer? I'm glad oh, I read it. That's interesting. I'm. But I like interesting messes, and this is an interesting <laughs> mess. Like this is a this is like case you know um, docket number yeah. one in interesting messes. In, in I think we're going to shake letters. out differently there. I yeah. like interesting messes too, but I found this to be more mess than interesting. Or is it even a mess? I mean, that's the question. Is it even messy? I don't. It may not even be messy. It feels yeah. It feels like a mess in some ways. Like yeah. I I think. 
It's almost too you know, tidy, maybe is what I'm saying at the end. Yeah, it's it too tidy that a micro dot and right. baby Nicole on a boat <laughs> right. brings down Gilead. Yeah, it's which is its own kind of mess. Like a yeah, too tidy, kind of mess, yeah, it's yeah. its own kind of mess. I think like it didn't affect, you know, like a new thing related to a thing you love does not recast the thing you no. love. And so like this did not make me appreciate The Handmaid's Tale any less. It doesn't change my or feelings anymore, though. Or about anymore. that book. Right. It also didn't deepen it. I yeah. don't have a continued desire to spend time in this world. If there's a no. third book, I am not excited about the existence of Uh, the existence of that. I don't think that you need to read this book um, as a person who loves The Handmaid's Tale. I don't think it will harm your memories of The Handmaid's Tale. It does flesh it out in some interesting ways. But like, if I get and I'm sure that I will get like, you know, DMs from people in my regular life who were like, or, you know, texts from people or my husband's aunts at Christmas will be like, wasn't there a new Handmaid's Tale book? And should I read it? Mm -hmm. Um, My first blush response is going to be like, you know, you don't really need to. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's not. um, It's not like that. In a way, it's a much different book and the circumstances are completely different, but it's sharing the same emotional response of having to go set a watchman Mm -hmm. in that regard. Like, it's interesting do, we didn't, am I, would I be sad if tomorrow I woke up and it didn't exist? Not no. really. Yeah, we didn't need this book. No, 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 no. Um, yeah, so, so you're, you're, you're right, too, that it didn't feel suspenseful, largely because the narrative is put together as documents, and two of the documents are witness post-action right. debriefs from the two women who nominally are in peril, but we know they survived because they're giving testimony to someone that's not Gilead. So they got out somehow. Mm -hmm. So some of the tension of will they make it or not is evaporated because if they didn't make it, they wouldn't be giving the testimony. Right. I mean, I thought you, I think I'm not sure. I hadn't even thought about the organization of the book in that way, but yes, that completely like that's what eradicates the suspense. And it could have been, you could have taken the exact same text, but made Aunt Lydia's parts like the first, you know, sixty yeah. percent of the book, and then done the turn of and like you, we could have had her talking about the girls, talking about her plan, like getting baby Nicole into Gilead, and then right up until the moment that she gets them out of Gilead, right. and then we could have flipped perspectives to those two girls and been with them in real time, um, maybe even in flashback to how baby Nicole ended up in Gilead and to mm-hmm. how Agnes ended up becoming an aunt and then moved up to the like moved up to that moment that they run away from Gilead and are trying to get the WikiLeaks thing to happen mm-hmm. that there would have been some suspense to that story but yeah it didn't feel um like you know that they're not ultimately in peril and that made it feel less like a thriller if that's what mm-hmm. it's supposed to be i'm not i'm not even i think that's my one of my central questions is what is this book supposed to be and like what genre did margaret atwood intend like what genre universe did Margaret Atwood intend for it to live in? And I'm yeah. just not sure. Like not yeah. that things have to fit neatly into categories, but it's this is a hard one to talk about because it feels like it is a little bit of many things, but I don't know what it intended to be. And evaluating a book or any piece of media, it helps to start from the place of like, what did this intend to do and does it fulfill that mission? And I just really don't know. I mean, if, if Atwood's desire was to have a page turnery story about the TikTok of how Gilead fell. It pretty much does that, I guess. Um, 
I, I guess. I, yeah. I guess that part too. It's... I think you know some of the things I liked. Well, I, I liked about the book were that the three main characters whose stories we get are coming at Gilead from different relationships to Gilead. One who's mm-hmm. lived outside of it her whole life, one who came to it later in life, and one who um, grew up entirely within it. And the collision of those three perspectives is interesting to yeah. think about. And, and I like the way that was put together. You know, th- we could do a whole thing about the consequences of a document text where you're presenting the documents of the text as sort of quote unquote real documents in the world of the text. Um, Cause Lydia, one thing Lydia is trying to do, there's she hides her own journal mm-hmm. in the journal of John Henry Cardinal Newman, who was a 19th century theologian who wrote later in a life, an apologia, which was basically an explanation of his conversion. And that's what Lydia is sort of doing. She's doing her own yeah. version of, you know, so the, the symbolism, again, you have to know 19th century uh, theologian slash poets, which not everyone does, but you can look it up. <laughs> Um, is very much an apology. She's explaining to the to posterity in the form of us why she did what she did. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's I'm not even sure that Lydia bec- she actually becomes very non complicated in a way um, because we sort of understand that the whole time she had she was playing a bigger game mm-hmm. and there were sacrifices to be made along the way, um, which undercut some of her tyranny in the in the Handmaid's Tale. I'm not sure if I read Handmaid's Tale now. It's like, does the Aunt Lydia we get there map to? Is she the Aunt Lydia oh, we know yeah, yet? That's a good I just point. don't like, know. I just don't know. You definitely should not read these out of order. <laughs> like, uh, Oh, that was going to ask you too. Can you read the Testaments <laughs> without having read the Handmaid's Tale? I don't think you can. Yeah, I think you'll be I mean, freaking lost. I think you'd be pretty confused. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't stand by itself. And... Like, I would not advocate for starting with the Testaments and then going back to The Handmaid's Tale if you have not already so. read The Handmaid's Tale. I don't think so. Um, yeah. What else do you want to say? Anything? Oh, man, I think that's it. I'm really curious about other reader responses. Like, one thing, the book's only been out for a couple of weeks, but internet chatter about, like, the actual contents uh-huh. of the book seems relatively quiet which might be its own kind of message about the reader response to it but um, shoot us an email if you've read this if you have thoughts questions um, if hearing about it affects your perspective on whether you're going to read it or not like all of the above is it useful to our listeners also to like hear a a deep oh yeah we haven't done one like this before about a new book book. yeah we'd like Um, to know if this was interesting tell us all the things podcast at bookriot.com i definitely liked reading it with this episode in mind of like what how to think yeah. about it I, that was really interesting to me so thank you for uh doing this uh at this yeah. time, even if we wish it was maybe something other than it was <laughs> yeah i liked that experience too it actually mm-hmm. that helped me get through it when i like w- when i got far enough into it to be like this is not going to give me like the spiritual things that i'm looking for from yeah. a second handmaid's tale book it was okay let, let's put on the lens of like how to talk about what this book is supposed to be or might be in culture what is it trying right. to do what might readers like or not like about it that getting out of my own reading experience and into a bigger framework was really interesting so i'm glad we did it too Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think of which what fans of The Handmaid's Tale especially would like this. I think if you really would like to find out how Gilead went down, like if it was meaning like if there'd be some catharsis and like Gilead's, you know, we know it's going. How did it really how did it really go down? That might be interesting to you. I guess I got the sense in the first book because of the coda that the thing wasn't there anymore. The Handmaid's Tale really wasn't about 
Gilead specifically, right? I mean, that wasn't the interest, I don't think, to me. It was like what Gilead represented. We knew it doesn't exist, so that it didn't exist in this non-real future didn't seem like the stakes were that high to me. So maybe that's another thing I'm coming. I was like, I knew Gilead didn't exist, Mm -hmm. and whatever terror it invokes was, you know, mapping it onto the world in which we live. And in the fictional world, we knew it was going to go away sometime. So... I, I don't know. I needed the 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 line, the dots connected for me. But if you were like, I really wanted to see Gil. I want these frickers to go down. <laughs> maybe that maybe that will be interesting. I mean, maybe I can so. see that some some segment of readers will find that good. Podcast at bookriot dot com. You can find show notes to this and all back episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. What's coming up in these bonus episodes? We should tell people Ooh, about if they our wanna... next one is our first crack at like sort of the. We, I, I don't know if we're going to call it Win at Book Club or the yes. Book Club Breakdown, but we are going to read Where the Crawdads Sing. <laughs> we are. You've read it. I've read I it. haven't. <laughs> um, my, I, actually, I'm 15 pages in. And knowing what you have read and some other people that I think my taste is more aligned with, I'm not sure this can, that's going to be a real upper either. We're going to have to find another interpreter of maladies at some point. Um, so we're going to be doing Crawdad. So if you want to, if you've been thinking about reading that and, you know, want to read it there, or if you had read it, um, you can look forward to that. Then after that is Shawshank, Book yeah, Nerd Movie Club, that's Shawshank gonna Redemption. That's going to be a nice one. That'll be feel good. So you think it'll be six hours long or eight hours long, <laughs> Shawshank Redemption? Uh, <laughs> How many snacks do I get to bring? <laughs> so many scenes. I'm so ready. It's going to be good. And uh, I guess we're going to have some audience participation stuff coming up later, but I'll just tease that now because yeah. we don't have the infrastructure yeah, stuff to are... accommodate it. But, yeah. <laughs> right. At you some know. point, you might be able to do something. Yes. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the next Boy, two that's really are... alluring. You might be able to Ooh. do something at some point. We got uh, that right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the next two are, where, uh, we'll talk about where the crawdads sing, probably mm-hmm. the larger phenomenon of that, and also give you lots of spoilers if your book club is reading it and you want to talk about it. Um, Or just want to know about it because people are asking me about it. I need need the episode of uh, Win at Book Club where the crawdads (laughs) Well, good Uh, news for you, Jeff. (laughs) It's funny. You're like this too where people who are, you know, maybe more typical readers, like they'll read books, but they're not doing this kind of stuff we care about or Mm -hmm. listeners of the show care about. They, anyone who's in that circle expects me to have read every book they've ever heard of. Not that the books that they've read, any book they've ever heard of. So everyone Mm -hmm. is asking me either, what did you think of the Where the Crawdads Sing? Oh my gosh, I love the, what's the deal with Where the Crawdads Sing? So we need some answers. It's really, we're we're doing work for ourselves and and making content out of it, maybe. was one way of uh, describing what we're doing. All right. That's the big, the best-selling single-day book of 2019, The Testaments. I was thinking about if we'd had these bonus episodes last fall, what books would we have done? Ooh. Would we have done Becoming? I don't know. That was my big question. I was on the fence. I'm not sure we would have. But that, that's what I think it it's was. harder to do this with a memoir. But who knows? Maybe we'll end up doing it with a memoir. Mm, yeah. Whose memoir? If not Michelle Obama's, there's not going to be a long if list. We, right. so we're not going to do been, it with that If one. we had been doing this in like 2017, we would have read The Nightingale. To try to find out oh, what's up. Oh, yeah. I was thinking about a list or something like that of like the most readable book club hits. You know, because mm-hmm. some of them are mm-hmm. pretty good and some of them aren't. Like The Help, please pass. Please don't read The Help. But like, hmm. Ooh, maybe we could do a revisit of some of the Oprah picks. But like, what are the, what are the best ones of those? What were the best ones of the Oprah picks? I don't know, because the last time that I read them, I was like 17. And you just so, liked whatever. And you're like, wow. Yeah, I amazing. liked whatever Oprah liked, because I yeah. wanted to be a grown-up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so 
so maybe we can take a paradise i guess that's a cheat that's a cheat paradise is probably the best but that's a cheat but i mean of the stuff that shows up on paperback favorites sort of the one hit wonders you know Mm -hmm. that had the oprah book or the big paperback sure like you got the wally lamb the yaya sisterhood perfect one all those Uh, lovely bones um we could do a doesn't hold up about one of the wally lamb books there is, there's all, I mean, he has a career, I guess. Do people buy Wally Lamb books now? If there's a new know. Wally Lamb book coming out tomorrow. Booksellers, hit us up. Yeah. I guess I should go to Barnes & Noble. Like, what right now is on that paperback favorite? Interpreter Maladies is there. Mm-hmm. It's often there. Well, we got some research to do. Ooh, if you go into a Barnes & Noble re- of late and you see the paperback favorites table, take a picture and email us at podcastofbookriot.com. I'd love to see what's on. Are they all the same? I don't even know this at Barnes and no, Nobles. They not have the some required titles, or at least when mm. I was at Barnes and Noble, you would get like some titles that had to be there that I assume were there for like publisher placement yeah, yeah, reasons yeah, yeah. or because they sell well or both. And then whatever spots were open, you could do like discretionary with books you had enough copies of. Okay. Anyway, the call is out. Take a picture of the paperback favorites table at your local Barnes and Noble. Find yourself out there. If I'm at a Barnes and Noble, I will take one and we can talk about that at some future show. Rebecca, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. This is fun. (laughs) 